It's easy to talk about the easy stuff. Work. Sports. But sometimes, we need to talk about the hard stuff. The difficult questions that linger in our minds, but we're afraid to ask. Is there truly a way to know right from wrong? Do advances in science undermine the authority of the Bible? Does God have anything to say about my depression? Does God hate me because I'm gay? Because I'm transgender? Is it just lights out when we die? Or is there something more? For too long, the church has avoided difficult conversations. As well, they're difficult. We're ready to change that. The afterlife, mental health, evolution, sexuality. This is a conversation about what God really has to say about these topics. Buckle up, this might get awkward. Hey, good morning. Nice to see you. Um, hey, if you were not with us here this last week, we talked about mental health and mental illness. We're in the middle of a series called This Might Get Awkward, and I'll tell you how we kind of picked our topics here in a minute, but we talked about mental health and mental illness uh, last week, and one of the things that we did at the end of the service is we invited people to come forward to receive prayer if they had struggled or are struggling with a mental health issue or mental illness. And uh, the way we picked our topics was we published this survey to our entire congregation, published it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, so whoever wanted to fill out the survey could complete the survey. And we basically said, hey, what are some topics that you think the church should address uh, that they kind of shy away from? Mental health was one of them. In fact, mental health was the top choice on that survey. More people asked us to address mental health uh, than any other topic. And so we knew last week that we were going to get kind of uh, a a, a large, you know, kind of response when it came to that particular topic, we did not know that it would be as large a response as we got. Uh, we're, we've been inundated with emails. We had so many people after service come forward to receive prayer. If you recall, I even asked people who had struggled with a mental illness, that includes me actually, uh, stand in the middle of that service and, and identify themselves just to say that those who are struggling uh, don't have to suffer alone, that you have a community of people around you who have endured some of the same things. And just over and over and over again, we've had people come forward and say, I, I've started a treatment plan or I want to start a treatment plan or find Finally, I can say this and I can, I can say, man, I struggle with the mental illness. And so as we talked uh, as pastors this week, one of the things that we said is we feel uh, very much responsible for you all, for the congregation, uh, in terms of spiritual, physical, emotional, and even mental health. And uh, what we wanted to do was provide a way for you, if that's you, if you're struggling with a mental illness or someone very, very close to you is struggling with a mental illness, a spouse, a friend, whatever, you want to know how to support them, we wanted to provide some tools and resources for you to be able to do that. And here, here's the thing. Uh, as, as, as What you heard last week in my sermon on mental health, that's like the extent of my expertise. That's it. That's all I got. So in terms of providing you professional kind of counseling in terms of a therapy plan and working towards that and putting a treatment plan together, I am not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. But here's the good news. I know a couple. 
right? That's, that's the thing. If you're not an expert on something, it's great to know other experts. And I do. I know a couple. Uh, two of them uh, actually spend some of their office hours here at the church. They have a private practice. They're both professional counselors. And they spend a couple of their, uh, some of their office hours here at the church providing counseling for people in our congregation and even to the community. Their names are Wafa and Ann. Uh, they are both extraordinarily brilliant people. You know, Wafa's the kind of person, it's like, you know, Wafa, can I make an appointment with you to do a counseling session? Sure. What language do you want to conduct that session in? Oh, okay, that tells me you're smarter than me, okay, because I speak two, English, no, it's just one, English, that's it, that's all I got. So, and, and Anne is just extraordinarily, they're extraordinarily brilliant women, and, and what they have agreed to do, we went and uh, spoke with them and said, could you kind of do a follow-up? A little bit of a workshop, 60, 90 minutes, something like that, after a Sunday morning service, after the 1115 service, we'll provide lunch, and anybody who wants to come can come, and you can get some practical tools and some resources to kind of put together a treatment plan. And they said, we would love to do that. We would be thrilled to do that. So we have yet to pick a date because it's so new. I mean, because we got this overwhelming response. We're going, what, what, what do we need to do to be helpful? Uh, so we are going to pick a date. We will let you know. If that's something you're interested in, you are invited to it just because you're hearing about it right now. You can invite anybody you want. Keep your eyes peeled. Keep your ears peeled for what, when that's coming down the road. People don't say keep your ears peeled, do they? That's not something people say. So here's what I'm going to do. Now that you know that, I'm going to pray primarily for myself uh, that I don't say keep your ears peeled again. And then we're going to get into our topic for this morning. God, thank you. Uh, for the opportunity even last week to talk about mental health and mental illness, to be real honest about it and give people an opportunity to receive prayer and then now even uh, maybe work towards a treatment plan. God, for those who are struggling with that particular uh, aspect of their life, I pray your grace over them and your sustaining uh, power and presence in their life, that you would give them hope and remind them that they are not alone. Remind them even now that at the end of the service, there will be prayer partners down here once again as we conclude and they can receive prayer even today if they'd like. God, now as we embark on this uh, discussion of our next topic in this series, this might get awkward. Would you be present here? Would you speak to us? And would you um, quicken our spirits and draw us near to you? In Christ's name, the people of God together said... Amen. One of uh, the issues on that survey, uh, along with money and power, along with sexual identity, along with science and the Bible, was just this one word, morality. And lots of folks indicated that they would like for us, or for me, to address morality from the pulpit. And here's the deal. That is so broad of a topic, I don't really know what that means. So that's our service today. I hope you enjoyed being here. Uh, no, what I think it means is really three critical questions. You don't have to write these down, but I think it means three critical questions. Uh, are there universal moral principles? Is there kind of this guiding uh, grid or framework or metric through which we can pass moral and ethical choices that help us make these moral decisions? And universal principles mean they transcend time, they transcend space, they transcend age, race, culture, whatever. Are there universal moral principles? Two, if so, who or what determines what those principles are or where do they come from? Where do those universal principles come from? And third, what are they? What are they? 
Does everybody understand the questions I'm asking here? Are there universal moral principles? Number two, where do they come from? And number three, where are they? And it's interesting because these three questions have been the topic of moral philosophy for really thousands of years. Even people like Socrates and Plato and others have endeavored to answer these questions. Are there universal moral principles? Where do they come from? And what are they? And any number of philosophers have suggested different things. And one of the things that I'd like to kind of start our discussion of morality is to couch it within the framework of moral philosophy by telling you about an experiment that uh, is called the Heinz Dilemma. The Heinz Dilemma. And you, you may know a guy named Heinz that used to serve on our elder board here. This is not that Heinz. It's a different Heinz. Okay. And the Heinz Dilemma goes this way. A man named Kohlberg, a sociologist and psychologist in the 20th century, uh, interviewed a number of focus groups and a number of individuals, and what he desired to do was to determine not what right and wrong is, but how those individuals made moral choices. What is it that's driving you? What are your values? What is helping you make moral choices? And the way he did it was he told them a story, made-up story, but he told them a story about a man named Heinz. He said, Heinz had a spouse, a wife, who was sick with cancer. And Heinz found out that there was a drug that could save his wife's life. But the drug cost $2,000. And Heinz didn't have it. So he found out that the person who was selling the drug, it only cost that person $200 to make. But he was selling it for $2,000. So Heinz goes, okay, let me see if I can get up with the $2,000. I'll scrape all my savings together. I'll borrow from people everything I've got. And what he came up with was only 1000 and he went to the man who was selling the drug for $2,000, only cost him $200 to make, and he said, I'll give you $1,000. You will net $800 in this whole deal. You give me the drug. I'll give it to my wife. She's cured of cancer, and everything's great. And the man said, no. No, I make $1,800 on this thing. Until you have $2,000, don't bother me. So Heinz is in a pickle now. He's got a choice to make. Should I break into this man's laboratory, steal that drug in order to cure my wife, or should I not do it at all because stealing is wrong? I'm in a moral dilemma. I'm in an ethical conundrum. It's called the Heinz Dilemma. And again, it's a popular dilemma among moral and ethical philosophers, especially in modernity. And this man named Kohlberg, who put this uh, dilemma together, found that there were kind of six stages of moral development, six different things that drove people to make whatever choice that they make. The first was kind of the punishment and obedience thing. Look, I could steal the drug, I might get caught and get punished for it, or I could not steal the drug and I could get punished for other people from other people for letting my wife die. So what I'm going to do is try to avoid punishment. This uh, critical question behind this punishment obedience mentality is, am I going to get caught, right? For whatever I do, are people going to find out? This is how my four-year-old makes her moral choices, right? There's no universal moral principles running through her head. Is stealing wrong? She's like, if as long as nobody sees it, cookie, ah, right? I make those same decisions with cookies, but that's beside the point. Okay, the second is self-interest orientation. This is what's best for me. What's best for me? What's in it for me? So again, for Heinz, in the Heinz dilemma, he, there could be something in it for him to steal. There could be something in it for him to not steal. And that would determine what is right or wrong. Third level of is interpersonal accord. That is to say, uh, are people going to think I'm a good boy or a good girl? 
Are people going to think I'm a bad boy or a bad girl? So for Heinz, I steal the medicine. Are people going to think I'm a bad boy if I stole it? Or if I say, no, I'm not going to steal the medicine. I'm just going to see what happens with my wife. Are people going to think I'm a bad boy? This is guilt and shame. In fact, if you've heard of a philosopher named David Hume, very popular philosopher, this is Hume's uh, moral reasoning. He says that moral choices don't come from reason. They come from guilt, shame, and fear. Or they come from uh, the possibility of praise from people around you. In other words, in an interpersonal accord. Uh, It could come from authority or social order. What does the authorities around me say? Uh, Once again, in Heinz's case, you could see that he might ask himself that same question. If you've heard a philosopher named Michel Foucault, uh, authority and social order is the way that he suggests moral choices are made. Could come from social contract. That is to say, what is the consensus of wise men over time, who have all come together to decide what is right and wrong, good and bad, or it could come from universal moral principles that transcend time, space, and culture. People like Socrates would suggest that there are those moral principles that they exist. Now, here's the thing. I'm not a very smart person. So when I look at these words up here, I think, man, that's a lot of big words. So what I want to do is boil these big words down into these 21st century pop culture statements that that we all understand. So some people make their moral choices or reason morally. They make their ethical choices with this phrase in mind. You do you, boo. You do you. That's the punishment obedience mentality. You do whatever it is you want to do. I would do whatever it is I want to do. And if you and I don't get caught, we're good. What's in it for me? That's the YOLO mentality. You only live once. You only live once. Which is so funny to me because Jesus kicked YOLO in the teeth, didn't he? Ha <laughs> ha, twice. That's beside the point. Besides, it's not really the point of the sermon. But YOLO, that's, that's a more, but people apply that to moral choices. Instagram morality is what I want to call this third one. That's the interpersonal accord. I've posted a choice on Instagram. I've posted something for people to see in Facebook and Twitter. And do they like it or not like it? What do other people say? Do they think I'm a good boy or a bad boy? I'm a good girl or a bad girl. What do they think? Fourth is what I would call dutiful morality. Uh, what is my duty? It, it, just pause here for a minute. It's a little bit of a side note, but most Christians don't ever move beyond this type of moral reasoning. They think it is my Christian duty to do X, Y, or Z. It is my Christian duty to avoid, avoid one, two, three. And basically, any moral philosopher out there would say that's not even the highest level of moral reasoning. Take it outside of the Bible. There's other higher levels of moral reasoning. We're going to talk about those this morning. Consensus morality is basically what does everyone have to say over time. And finally, we're going to say that the highest level of moral reasoning is principle-driven moral reasoning. That's what Kohlberg would say, and that's what countless moral philosophers would say throughout the ages. So if you're jotting down notes, jot this down. Is the, we want principles to govern practices. Does that make sense? We want truth goals, vision, values to determine how we behave. So let me give you an example. If all I did all day was sit around and eat ice cream, oh my gosh, that already sounds really good. Whoa, okay. 
is eat ice cream and watch like murder she wrote reruns and take naps in the afternoon and like never move. And I got really, really unhealthy over time. And somebody came to me and asked me what the principle was that's driving my practice. I would say there is no principle that's driving my practice. I just do what it is I want to do. Then you start making up principles in order to excuse your practice. So the principle is, well, physical health doesn't really matter. So that excuses me from my behavior that's causing me to be really physically unhealthy. But what if we switched it around and say, here's the principle that I do want to be physically healthy. I do want to take care of my body because I want to live to give my daughter away at her wedding when she's 92 or whatever it is that I, you know, that I want to live to do. I want to take care of my body physically. So there's my principle. Now my principle drives my practice like dieting, like exercise, like sleep, all of those things. We want principles to drive and govern our practice. Same goes for our moral and ethical choices. We want principles to shape the way we behave. So once again, here are our three questions. Are there universal moral principles that will govern our practices? Who or what decides what they are? Where do they come from? And third, what are they? So now that we've couched it in the context of moral philosophy, what I want to submit to you is a biblical model for moral reasoning. Where does morality come from? Are there universal moral principles, and what are they? I want to answer those three questions from a biblical perspective. And here's where I want to start, because a lot of us think of morality in terms of right and wrong, good and bad. But biblically speaking, it's even more than that. It's not any less than that, for sure, but it's even more than that. I love John 10.10. We quote it all the time in here, but Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, that they may have joy and have it overwhelmingly, that they might have blessing pouring out from everywhere. So when we start talking about morality this morning, can we think of it as joy and sorrow rather than right and wrong? I'm not suggesting to you that there is no such thing as right and wrong. I believe there is right and wrong. You'll hear me say that this morning. But when we get into this idea of right and wrong, what we get trapped in is David Hume's philosophy of guilt, fear, and shame or the possibility of praise driving my moral choices. Now my moral choices are based on what other people think of me rather than universal moral principles. And we get trapped in that when we start thinking right and wrong. What if we think in terms of joy and sorrow? Joy and sorrow. Uh, life and death, when it comes to the choices I'm faced with in life, what is going to bring me joy? What is going to suck joy out of me? What is going to give me life and what is going to bring death, not just physically, but in my relationships, in my dreams, in my job, or whatever? And Jesus comes along and says, I have come so that you could have that. So that you could have that joy, so that you could have that life. And one of the things that God has given us is his commandments, and he's given it to us for our joy. God has given us a moral code of right and wrong. God has given us moral principles. So are there universal moral principles? Yes, God has given them for your joy, for good things for you. I've used this example before, but I want to use it again. Kaya is not allowed, four-year-old, not allowed to touch the fireplace. Why? Because if that darn thing is burning and we start burning it and it hits about 22, 
right? Man, it's cold at 22. Whew, yeah, light up that wood-burning stove. Okay, so we start burning that thing. I said, Kai, you're not allowed to touch the fireplace. Why? Because if it's burning and she touches it, it will rob her of her joy, will it not? It will rob her of her joy. I don't make arbitrary rules for my kid. I give her my commandments for her joy. Same goes for your heavenly father. His moral code is not these arbitrary things like, uh, good luck, see if you can live up to it. That's not the issue. The issue is he's given it to us for our joy. I want to give you a couple of examples. God says in Malachi 2 that he hates divorce. He hates divorce. And people say this all the time. It's like, God hates divorce. He's looking down on you and he just hates it. He hates it. So I would submit to you this. Okay, don't raise your hand. You don't want to raise your hand. Have you been through a divorce? Is there somebody close to you, a parent, a friend, that's been through a divorce? How many of those of us who have been very close to a divorce would say, you know what, I disagree with God on this one. I love it. It's great. I, you know, People in my life got divorced, and everybody came out better for it. It was a ton of fun. Wonderland, divorce, lots of fun. No. Why did God give us this command? He hates divorce. Because you hate it too. And I hate it too. And nobody comes out better for it. It robs us of our joy. God has given us his commandments for our joy. Example number two, it's up here on the screen. Don't get drunk with wine. For that's debauchery, that's loose living. There's no rail. So he's got to say, here is a stipulation, a moral stipulation of right and wrong that will bring you joy. Let me put it this way. The next time you get super hammered, and for some of you there will be a next time. For some of you there won't, but some of you there will. And you're throwing up over your toilet. (laughs) Do not ask yourself, did I do the right thing or the wrong thing? Ask yourself this. Is this a joyful experience? And then, you know what voice is going to ring in your head? Mine. God has given you his commandments for your joy. And you disobeyed his commandments, and it robbed you of your joy. See? Example number three, it's up here on the screen. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Our model is God, our model is Christ, and he has forgiven us, therefore forgive one another. Why? Because every psychologist in the world would agree that things like this, persistent bitterness, may result in global feelings of anger and hostility that, when strong enough, could affect a person's physical health. Unforgiveness affects your physical health. Uh, psychologist number two, it's up here on the screen, a guy named Stephen Stosny. The road to bad sex, divorce, alienated children, aggressive driving, business failure, community disintegration, and violence begins with resentment. And you know it's true because he was on Oprah. It's true. It's true. He's on Oprah. See, God has given us his commandments for our joy. So when he says, forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you, God has given us his commandments for our joy. They're not arbitrary definitions of right and wrong, some like out there moral code. God has designed you, and he's given you those moral commandments for your joy. And God has prescribed that which induces joy and written it on the hearts of people. Uh, When I say this word prescribed, it's like when you go to a pharmacist and they say, here's your prescription. They're not saying, it's a suggestion. Take it if you want. If you don't, don't. They're saying, no, it's an antibiotic. Take it or you're going to die. 
It's a rule. It's a commandment. It's a prescription. God has prescribed that which induces joy and written it on the hearts of men. When I say written it on the hearts of men, what that means, it's, it's ingrained inside of you. It's built into you. It's hardwired into each and every human being, regardless of your faith background, regardless of what you know about God's definitions of right and wrong. It's just in you. The most clear way this is articulated in the scripture is in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So what is Paul saying here? First, he's saying, Gentiles who do not have the law, they're not able to open up the Old Testament and go, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery. You know, they're, they're all that stuff. And they're not able to go and look through that. They don't have it. Now, some do, but back then, Gentiles didn't. They did not have God's moral code. However, they by nature did what the law required. They avoided stealing. They avoided murder. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them. When they did that, they become for themselves a law unto themselves, even though they don't have it. So what are they showing, Paul says? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. They demonstrate that it's ingrained within them. They demonstrate that it's hardwired within them. They demonstrate that they don't necessarily need God to write it out on paper. It's already hardwired within them because their conscience bears witness. They feel guilty or they feel absolved of guilt, depending on whether they did what is right or what is wrong. Their conscience either accuses them or excuses them. So what Paul is saying here is it's hardwired within them. So if they were to walk up to somebody randomly and punch them, pow, like that. Like they don't need God to tell them that's wrong because there's a guilt inside of them and their conscience accuses them. That little Jiminy Cricket thing on your shoulder that says, you shouldn't punch people randomly. You know what I mean? Like that's it's not God's voice, but nor did he create Jiminy Cricket, but that's our conscience accusing us whether we have the law or not. Or if we're generous to somebody and give to somebody who has less resources than us in order to help them, we feel good about ourselves, don't we? Like, wow, I did. I felt, I felt good about myself because I gave to somebody. Why? Because God's law of generosity and treating people with kindness is already ingrained within you, Paul says. In other words, God has prescribed that which induces joy and written it on the hearts of men. There is a moral code there are universal moral principles that bring life or bring death, depending on whether you adhere to them or not. They bring joy or bring sorrow, whether you adhere to them or not. So what, and God is the one who created that. He has recorded it, recorded it. That's double past tense, recorded it. It happened so long ago, he recorded it, right, in his, in his Bible. You see, I prayed for myself before when I said, peel your ears back or whatever it is I said. I don't even know what I said. God has recorded it in his scripture and he's written it on your heart so that it's ingrained within you. So what gives God the right to do that? Well, God created you and everything else. <laughs> so it gives him the right to do that. And not just the right to do that. Why would we listen to God? who prescribes what induces joy because God knows you and everything else better than you know you and everything else. God knows what brings you joy. God knows what brings you life. So he says, do this stuff. It'll bring you joy and life. And don't do this stuff because it will rob you of joy and rob you of life. There are countless examples of what might feel like 
arbitrary, strange, ridiculous rules in the Old Testament that were designed to bring people life. And we might read them now, or, or the people that received them thousands of years ago might look at that and go, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What does that have to do with anything? That seems so random, so arbitrary. Let's do, let's do this. Let's talk about circumcision. It's going to be a fun morning. Buckle up. Okay, let's talk about circumcision. Okay, we took Canaan to get circumcised. Uh, this is our 10-week-old, right? And it was like day four or something of his little life, and we took him in to get circumcised. He's going to hate me. I'm saving for therapy. I, I know. So we, we took him to this doctor in Miami, and this guy was not a man of faith necessarily at all, but he was telling us, uh, in, we were in the room when Canaan was getting circumcised. He's like, do you want to see? I was like, no, sir, I don't. Um, but thank you very much for asking. And then I stood up to look. That was a bad idea. I got very lightheaded. So He's got my little kid strapped down to this thing, and he's like, he's like doing the circumcision as he's talking to me like I'm talking to you right now. I'm like, this should be a little more reverent or whatever. But he's, he starts to tell me, like, here's the deal, um, that when babies are born, they don't only have the right levels of stuff in their blood to make their blood clot. One of them is vitamin K. They have low levels of vitamin K, and they don't get all of their vitamin K up until later in life. In fact, it happens on about day eight of life. The reason we can circumcise Canaan right now is even though he's day three, day four years old, is because they gave him a shot of vitamin K when he was very, when he was very first born, and they pushed his vitamin K levels up, and they pushed some other levels up in his blood because we have modern medicine and we do that. But, but back when, before modern medicine, you had to wait until day eight. And on day eight, your vitamin K levels and those other levels in your blood weren't at necessarily 100%. They weren't at 100% of what they would be for the rest of your life. They were at 110%. They actually go up over the top and then drop back down. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Well, doesn't that seem like a random rule? Doesn't it seem like an arbitrary rule? God says, no, 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 I know you. And everything else, better. And you know you. And everything else. So you want to do the circumcision thing? Fine. Don't do it on day two because you're going to bleed out. Wait till day eight. You see? God knows you. And everything else, better than you know you and everything else. Second example. I told you this before, but when I was in university, I was living with a couple of other guys, and all of us were stupid. Um, stupid, stupid. I, mean, I should tell you a story one time. Like, I got a call from my roommate. He's on the way to the hospital. He had busted his face open with stitches. I said, what happened? He said, I, I had a hoe in the backyard, like a gardening hoe, and I was pretending to be Donatello from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I hit myself in the face with it. So could you come pick me up at the hospital because I'm getting stitched up? I, okay. Or I should tell the story one time. My, my roommate wanted to be hairless, so he nared himself. You know what nair is? He stuff on, you know, peel it off. But he didn't read the instructions. He thought he had, like, the old, like, regular nair, but he had, like, super nair. And so the old nair, which he had done multiple times before, which I find really weird, you're supposed to leave on for 15 minutes. But super nair, you leave on for two minutes. So the super nair, you're supposed to leave on for two minutes. He left on for 15 minutes. And he called me. He's like, I have third-degree burns. I'm at the hospital. I have chemical burns. You know, the stupid people. We're all stupid people. Okay. So nair boy... Nair boy and me one day walk into our washroom and notice that there's black stuff growing in our washroom. And we're like, well, that is not aesthetically pleasing. What are we going to do about this? 
we painted over it. <laughs> we literally did. We went to like Home Depot or Rona or somewhere. And we're like stocked up on paint. Like one o'clock in the morning, we're like, you know, whistle while you work. What was that black stuff? Mold. It was mold. We're stupid people. How I'm still alive, I will never know, you know? Look back at the book of Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when you come into the land of Canaan, which I will give you for possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in your house. He's talking about mold here. In the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall go to Home Depot and paint over it. No. Go tell the priest. There seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. And then the priest shall command that they empty the house. Wise choice. Before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all in the house be declared unclean. And afterwards, the priest shall go in to see the house. And when he does, he shall examine the disease. If the disease is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish spots. We're talking about mold here. Uh, and if it appears to be deeper than the surface, then... The priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house for seven days, quarantine the house. And he shall, the priest, come again on the seventh day and look. And if the disease is spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall come out and command that they take out the stones in which the disease, in which is the disease, and throw them into an unclean place outside of the city. Don't use them to build another house. Don't just paint over them. Throw them somewhere. And then he shall scrape the inside of the house, and the plaster that they scrape off, they shall pour out in an unclean place, again, outside of the city. Then they shall take some other stones and put them in the place of the stones, and he shall take other plaster and plaster the house. goes on to say the priest needs to come back and check the house again, and if it grows again, then you just destroy the house and rebuild the whole thing completely. Do not go to Home Depot and paint over it. Why? Because God knows you and everything else better than you know you and everything else. And he has not given his commandments in just the arbitrary way. You can imagine the nation of Israel going, they don't know what mold is. Nobody's, nobody's put that under a microscope. Nobody's developed antibiotic. No, nobody knows what that is. God is protecting his people and giving them life and joy. Why? Because he knows you. He created you in his own image. He designed you. Now, those are two funny examples, but listen to me. When we start talking about human sexuality, when we start talking about the right to life, when we start talking about critical moral choices that we're faced with in modernity, we have to start there, that God knows us and everything else better than we know us and everything else. And he's given us his commandments from an omniscient, that is to say, all-knowing perspective. And he's done it for our joy. So we've answered two questions. Are there universal moral principles? Yes. Where do they come from? They come from God. Last question. What are they? What are they? Now, I can't go through every specific example and apply scripture to it. What I can suggest to you is that there's a little bit of a grid, a framework, a picture that helps us to kind of put a filter over the top of moral and ethical choices, maybe to help us 
as Christians make choices that are in line with God's moral code. And I want to tell you about three images that a guy named Richard Hayes suggests in a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. I just want to give credit where credit is due. It's a very, very long read. It's, it's a scholastic read, but it's very worthwhile. He does a comprehensive study of kingdom ethics, essentially is what he calls them. What are the ethical principles, the moral principles, the transcendent universal principles that Jesus introduces specifically in the New Testament. And he says that there are three images that help us understand right, wrong, true, false, good, bad, joy, sorrow, life, death, when it comes to moral and ethical choices. The first image is this, community. Community. If you're jotting down notes, jot this one down, community. Uh, First of all, God's covenant community existed long before Jesus, long before the church, and long before you. In fact, it existed with Adam and Eve when he created them, male and female, created us to be in relationship with one another. He established his family through Abraham and then the nation of Israel. Jesus comes along and inaugurates the church age, and now God's covenant community is the church. Well, what does community have to do with anything? Well, take a look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's talking about Jesus there. Jesus was rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's eyes. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. So here's what Peter is saying. In the United States, he would not be talking about the United States, but let's just put it in our framework. In the United States, when it comes to how we interact with one another, we talk about a melting pot. You leave your culture, you leave your language, you divorce those things when you come to the United States, and you are assimilated into a melting pot, a big pot of stew, right? You've heard that before? In Canada, it's a mosaic, You retain your language. You retain your culture. You retain your background. And we just live alongside each other in a mosaic, and it's beautiful and lovely, and we tolerate one another inside of that. See, what Peter is saying is that still falls short of the biblical vision for community. You are living stones being built into a spiritual house. That is to say you're not in a melting pot. You're not tolerating one another, but you are in interdependent relationships, and God has designed you to work together closely in order to achieve his goals, that is to say, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when it comes to morality and the ethical choices you are faced with, what Peter is saying is that community, the church, we, is greater than me. Now that flies in the face of our individualistic culture, doesn't it? When you have a moral or ethical choice to make, God's community of faith, the church, is more important than you as an individual. How you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you exercise your gifts, what you do with your vocation, what your marriage is like, what do you do with your Saturday? We is greater than me from a biblical perspective. That is to say, when you have a moral, ethical choice to make, the question is this, not what should I do, but what should we do? How is this going to impact others around me? Image number two when it comes to moral choices from the New Testament is this, the cross, the cross. The authors of the Gospels and throughout the uh, New Testament, this idea of sacrifice and self 
A denial is evident. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he says, if you want to follow me, he says, then you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and then go ahead and do it. Follow me. So critical, integral to Christian ethics, a Christian moral worldview, is this idea of sacrifice, the cross. In other words, not what can I gain, but what can I sacrifice? Not what's in it for me, but what can I give? Third question, third image, is the image of new creation. All over the New Testament, Jesus talks about his mission as inaugurating a kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Jesus uh, announces that the kingdom of God is at hand and invites people to come be a part of it. That's what repent means. Come be a part of the kingdom of God and believe. Jesus inaugurated that kingdom. One day he will complete it when he returns to consummate the kingdom. And in the meantime, the church has been charged as God's primary vehicle for transformation in the world to continue kingdom ethics. But when Jesus comes back to do all that, that's what's called new creation, recreation. And it's our job in the meantime to restore, redeem, renew, bring life where there's death, bring joy where there's sorrow. Be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, bringing the kingdom of God anywhere and everywhere we go. So in, when it comes to applying the lens of new creation, we ask ourselves not, what have I consumed, but what have I created? Not what have I consumed, but what have I created? I've told people this uh, a thousand times, but about 95% of the moral choices that I'm faced with in life, about 95%, I don't need the Bible to tell me, do this or don't do that. Why? Because I know the heart of God. And if all I did was knew the heart of God, I could make pretty good moral choices by and large. Not always, but pretty good. One of them, let's say, for example, is stealing. The Bible tells me, do not steal. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's right there. It's a wrong choice. It's not morally correct. Got it. But if I understand that God's goal is recreation, renewal, and redemption, I don't need the Bible to tell me that stealing is wrong. Why? I already know it's wrong because if I take something from somebody else, the world has a net gain of zero, right? All it does is just change hands. That's it. Your car becomes my car. Your TV becomes my TV. Your house becomes my house. Nobody gains anything. But if I look at what somebody else has and I'm inspired by it, and I'm like, oh, man, what a lovely this or that or the other thing. And then I go over here and I create my own. I build a business. I create a culture. I plant a garden. Whatever it is you desire to do. Whoa, excuse me. Good gravy, that's embarrassing. Um, whatever it is that you desire to do, instead of taking it, if you create it, now you're a contributor and not a consumer. I guarantee you, in so many aspects of your life, I mean, just, I'll just, just do one. I'll just do one. Just one example. Young people, dating, your physical relationship. What if you asked yourself, in terms of making moral choices, not what can I gain, but what can I sacrifice? Not is this good for me, but is this good for we? And am I consuming or am I creating? What if you asked yourself those three questions? And what if, what if those principles governed your practice rather than the other way around? This goes for business. This goes for relationships. This goes for every single aspect of your life, applying 
kingdom ethics that God has designed for your joy. Last thing I want to say, and we'll be done. Uh, if you are not a Christ follower, uh, you can just kind of close your ears for a minute. I said peel your ears back a while ago. Now I'm saying close your ears, which you can't actually do. But oh my gosh, this is totally derailed. I'll try to conclude this as quickly as I can. Okay, if you're a Christ follower, the call of Jesus is not to invite him into your heart. You didn't invite Jesus into your heart. The call of Jesus is to follow him. You watch what he does, you do it. You, you find out what he thinks, you think that. You find out what makes him angry, that should make you angry. You find out what he's passionate about, you should be passionate about that. You find out what he's up to in the world, you join him in that. So when it comes to moral reasoning, when it comes to morality, right, wrong, joy, sorrow, life, and death, for the Christ follower, listen very closely, Jesus is the foundation for morality rather than our own hearts. Now, for so many of us, we don't want to forgive because it feels right to withhold. We, we don't want to accept the biblical definition of marriage because it just doesn't feel right for whatever reason. We don't want to accept kingdom ethics because in our own hearts for some reason. But if you have submitted your life to Christ and said, I'm going to follow him, you follow him in morality too. And the foundation for morality is him, not your own heart. This is the reason, actually, that we're going to conclude with this song uh, this morning. I think it's so applicable. It's called King of My Heart. We're inviting Jesus not to be the PM, not to be the advisor, but the king, the controller, the sovereign in our own hearts. Let's pray together and we'll conclude as we sing. God, thank you for your grace to us. God, may we be a people that know you have our best interest in, at heart your glory at heart, that you've given us your commandments for our joy. And when they feel arbitrary, remind us, God, that you know us better and everything else better than we know ourselves or anything else. Help us to be the kind of people that see morality and ethics through those three panels, community, cross, and new creation. Help us to ask questions, not what's in it for me, but what's in it for we. Not what can I gain, but what can I sacrifice. Not what can I consume, but what can I create. So that we're the kind of people that bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We lift our voices to you now, King of our heart. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Let's stand as we conclude.